Welcome to That Jewish News Show. I'm Laura E. Adkins, the Forward's Opinion Editor. And I'm Benjamin Cohen, the Forward's News Director. And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, as always, don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review That Jewish News Show. Up ahead, we will be speaking with our colleague, Jacob Kornblut, about how President Biden is walking a fine line in the 2024 election between embracing Israel and criticizing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Jacob's our senior political reporter here at The Forward, so he'll be joining us to talk about that in the 2024 election and looking ahead at that. So, but first, Laura, what has been going on with you? Well, it's been a very exciting end of summer for me. I was just in Colorado for my best friend's wedding. It was really lovely, and I also got to go hiking and kayaking and frolicking in Rocky Mountain National Park, which is just gorgeous and stunning and makes you feel patriotic in a real, you know, (laughs) national anthem type of way to see all the mountains and everyone out and about. And it was really lovely. How have you been, Benjamin? Uh, Doing well, just getting ready. Uh, I'm traveling this weekend. We're having a family reunion in Connecticut. It's my dad's 80th birthday. And so we're all getting together for that. So that should be nice. And while I'm in the tri-state area, I am super excited. Uh, I'm going to be going. My favorite movie of all time is Back to the Future, and they just turned it into a Broadway musical. So I'll be going to that next week, which is. That's the real reason you're coming to New York. Yeah, Don't for... lie. <laughs> Forget <laughs> the family reason. Again. But yes, I'm, I'm super, super excited about that. So let's, uh, let's talk about some news of the week. Laura, why don't you, why don't you go first? Yes. So as everyone has probably been watching the Maui fires, unfortunately, the death toll has now risen above 100. And our Lewis Keene wrote a story about the Chabad rabbi and his wife who run a kosher farm in the area outside of the burn zone and are working to help the area's estimated 2,500 Jews get back on their feet. They've been providing shelter, doing fundraising, and really just coming together to assist people who were stranded. And it was a very touching story. We also shared earlier today a story that our colleague Rob Eshman wrote a few years ago. I'm sure a lot of folks, as I am, are feeling a bit hopeless and despair over this whole situation. And Rob, a couple years ago, wrote a really practical guide to things Jews specifically can do about climate change. So I encourage you to check out both Lewis's story and the climate change story as well. I keep forgetting the governor of Hawaii is Jewish. He's he's obviously in the news a lot now. How many Jewish, is that a pop trivia question? How many Jewish governors are there right now? (laughs) That's a great question. I have no idea. I'm guessing somewhere between one and seven. That's, that's, that's a high number. I, right. So we have Josh Green from Hawaii and we have Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. How many uh, Joshes are governors? How many, how many Jewish question. Joshes are governors is probably the better question. Uh, another story we've been following. This was uh, the lead of our newsletter this morning. The Anti-Defamation League this week identified at least 26 incidents just in the past three and a half weeks of bomb threats or swatting. If you don't know what swatting is, that's when 
people call the police and they make up a threat. You know, there's a bomb in a building or, you know, and the police SWAT team comes, you know, comes guns, guns blazing, guns blazing yeah. on that place. So that's been happening uh, at least 26 times in the last month. Different shuls all across the country. Twelve different states have been hit. Just three this past weekend, two in California, one in there was a bar mitzvah in Texas. And wow. the, the boy is reading the the Torah portion, and all of a sudden, all these police just came running into the shul. Because That's quite had, an exciting turn of events, yeah. Because yeah. they had gotten this false call about a false uh, bomb, bomb report. So um, what's interesting, if you read the article on our site, you know, the, the people who are pulling these pranks, who are making these fake calls to the police about these fake bomb threats, they uh, are targeting shuls that live stream their services. Because when they pull this prank they want to see what happens they're not just calling some random show where they can't see what actually mm-hmm. happens they want to see the police mm-hmm. rush into the sanctuary so they're choosing well, shuls yeah. that do live streaming services and so one of the security experts we interviewed said well you know my suggestion is stop live streaming services which is you know okay but totally like- impractical for every reforming conservative shul yeah, it was such a nice addition, you know, that started during the pandemic for people who couldn't make it to shul. And now all these people are, you know, counting on live streaming services. And because of these pranksters, they may have to end that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of a couple things. I mean, first of all, swatting is can be really serious. It's not just a prank, which makes me, you know, increasingly thankful or consistently thankful that Jews, for the most part in this country, have a really good relationship with police departments we have seen through the reporting that our colleagues did that most of these swattings were not like some of the other swatting incidents I've read about, particularly where people of color are the victims. You know, the cops will go in guns blazing, assuming everything is not right. Often people have gotten hurt in the process, but it sounds like in a lot of these cases, the cops just kind of calmly come in, see what's going on, tell everyone about the problem, which is a totally different experience than many Americans have. And it also reminds me of, in 2017, there was this huge story I did a lot of reporting on. There were a lot of bomb threats called into JCCs. I think over 150 bomb threats were called in. And, you know, I made this big map of it and we were all watching it very seriously. And it turns out it was like a 19-year-old American-Israeli kid. It had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It was a disturbed teenager. And... You know, it. we make all these grand narratives surrounding these things and tie them into the increasing of anti-Semitism when it suits our narrative. But I, I wonder what's happening here and if we're kind of losing sight of that. But I don't know. What are you thinking about as you're, you're seeing these stories, Benjamin? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I should we should point out these callers have also not only targeting synagogues, they're also targeting black churches and Sikh mm. temples. When the police get a bomb threat like this, like you said, they do come guns blazing and it causes a lot of havoc uh, within the congregation. It's it's not like a typical police call. It, it, it's really meant to yeah. just cause the most dangerous and disruptive response. I mean, it's, it's really horrible. Speaking of horrible. <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of this may or may not be anti-Semitic in nature, but we certainly have a recent case that to me is unequivocal. Um, a former Trump advisor, Mike Flynn, uh, falsely stated that, quote, there weren't any guards monitoring deportations 
um, to the concentration camps and that Holocaust victims could have simply walked away or defied Hitler's soldiers. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you make of that, Benjamin? So this is uh, General Michael Flynn. You know, he has a long history of uh, making um, not only anti-Semitic statements. He makes he's made a ton of um, anti anti-Muslim statements as well. He's a, a Christian nationalist. Um, he's made a lot of controversial statements. And, you know, many people, I think, in the general public look at him as a fringe character. But like you said, he you know was high up in the Trump administration. He was the national security advisor. And Trump pardoned him, you know, uh, and he's still very active now, now in Trump's reelection campaign. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves every day, like when we're reporting the news at the forward, like there's people making crazy statements every day, you know, and which ones do we decide are worth writing about? Which ones do we ignore? Are we platforming these crazy statements by sharing these news stories? You know, these are something issues we have to deal with constantly. Yeah, I mean, as many millions of folks read the foreword, this clip of the speech was already viewed 8 million times uh, since it was posted to Twitter. So I think that we weren't necessarily amplifying it that much. But I, I also do think this gets into a, a little bit more tricky conversation, which is that the systematic brutality of the Holocaust, even if you go to the concentration camps, even if you go to the really well-done museums in Germany that talks about the slow rise of fascism and Nazism and how this horrible thing, you know, started very slowly and then all at once, it's really hard to wrap your head around exactly what happened. And Flynn's comments, honestly, to me, were not so far off from some of the lines that have since become controversial that I heard growing up about, you know, like Jews going like sheep to the slaughter on on these cattle cars i think honestly not to give him the benefit of the doubt but it just gets to the fact that like the brutality of the holocaust was incomprehensible and there's really no way to wrap your head around how horrible it was and you can't really put yourself in the shoes of anyone that was there unless you know you've spoken to survivors and really understand the systematic nature of the pressures and the the breaking down of the Jewish community that was done again systemically and over time. So if you pick just one moment in time, I guess I could see you know someone cockily being like, "Oh, I could have, I could have right. dealt with right. that." But if you look at the history of all of the uprisings that did happen and like all the ways that the Jews did fight back you know, most of those did not end super well. So it's, yeah, it's, his comments were super unfortunate. You would think most politicians, uh, most people in the public sphere in 2023, like there's no winning when you start invoking any Nazi None. analogies. I just None, don't know never. why people keep, why people keep doing that. It's like, you know, uh, public relations 101, you know, just, you, know, you never bring yeah. up Nazis. Well, I guess if any press is good press, but I yeah. certainly don't think this would count. So we want to uh, bring on our colleague, Jacob Kornblu, the Forward's uh, senior political reporter. How are you, Jacob? Good. And I also believe that press is good press, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, the reason we wanted to have you on today, you wrote this really fascinating uh, analysis piece that we published uh, that we uh, published this weekend. Just to set the stage, I just want to let our listeners know. So obviously Israel's in an unprecedented 
political turmoil right now over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's push to overhaul the judicial system. And you spoke with lots of Jewish leaders and experts to kind of assess the repercussions on how what's happening in Israel is going to impact the 2024 presidential election and basically more broadly just the historic alliance uh, between the two nations. So tell us, what can you talk to us a little bit about this tightrope that Biden is walking? Obviously, he's pro-Israel, but he's also trying to uh, show that he can stand up to Netanyahu. I look back at a comment, a remark uh, Biden made uh, almost 10 years ago at the AJC gathering. He noticed uh, Ambassador Ron Dermer, who was ambassador at the time, now he's a senior cabinet minister, and it was during a rift between the two uh, um, administrations. Uh, if you recall, there was this, I don't know what the policies here are on this podcast, but there was this chicken shit moment where somebody in the administration, a senior official, criticized Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, policies. And obviously there was tension, you know, from, from the moment uh, Barack uh, um, Obama took office, and he said, "Tell Bibi I love, I lo- I still love him." In- You're saying Biden said that? Yes, and he alluded yeah. to that picture he signed in the early 2000s, where he said, "Bibi, I love you, but I don't agree with the damn things you say." And I yep. sort of, you know, a decade later, it seems like it's a little uh, changed. Like Biden says, "Israel, I still love you." But I don't agree with the damn thing you are doing in terms, obviously, of policies. So there is there this, this distance of how the Israeli government, the far-right Israeli government, is pursuing policies that are very dear to one, to the United States um, from a you know strategic point, but also, obviously, shared values. And it doesn't seem that the president is really intent on sort of holding Netanyahu accountable. He criticizes the extreme cabinet ministers who are racist and extreme on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He obviously invites Tom Friedman into the Oval Office uh, to criticize the unilateral steps the government took on the judicial overhaul. But he, you know, he's obviously snubbed Netanyahu, hasn't invited him yet to the White House, but we expect that to happen in the coming weeks weeks or months. So he hasn't taken any tactical moves uh, to hold the Netanyahu government accountable. And that says something. Obviously, it has to do a lot with uh, Biden's genuine uh, love for Israel. He's famous for saying you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. And he has a long uh, 40-year friendship with Netanyahu. So it's hard to sort of um, erase that. Having said that, I do believe that if Israel moves unilaterally on further legislation, there will be tremendous pressure from his own party. And we're not talking about the progressive left. We're talking about mainstream uh, Democrats, Jewish groups, even as we are discussing, even Jewish voters who wouldn't mind him to take some action to show the Netanyahu government that it's on the wrong path. 
Right. Well, as we've written about a lot, most American Jews, most the vast majority of non-Orthodox American Jews, but most American Jews in general, lean very heavily in line with the Democratic Party. But I want to take a step back for a second. You you alluded to this long friendship between Netanyahu and Biden. What are some of the other either flashpoints or tense periods that they've had in their long relationship? And how are those kind of tensions still at play right now? The most significant moment uh, was in 2010 when Biden visited Israel, Jerusalem, as vice president. And he met with Netanyahu. And then I think hours before a dinner with Netanyahu at his residence, the Israeli government announced the building of a few hundred, a few thousand, I can't recall at the top of my head, uh, units in East Jerusalem, which is still uh, considered um, occupied territory. And Biden was like, why are you doing this to me? There was this, mm-hmm. you know, moment where Biden, frankly, told Netanyahu, I'm losing trust in you because you're doing this to a friend. You're doing this to somebody who's mm-hmm. trying to be that moderate voice within the administration. We know the Obama administration had some conflict within the administration, how to deal with Netanyahu and the settlements. And Biden was that moderating force. He was that force saying, you know, don't don't go hard on Netanyahu. And here he is in Jerusalem and that is happening. I think now we are facing the same moment where Netanyahu, we saw his 22 or 25 media appearances on U.S. networks in English and his conversations with Congress members, with U.S. officials and with business leaders, uh, promising that he would seek broad consensus. That hasn't happened and we don't predict it to happen. And so if Netanyahu has lied once, twice, 30 times or even more, especially to a U.S. president, uh, you'd probably see something. uh, (laughs) Biden, you know, is not somebody who hides uh, his frustrations uh, uh, in public. And so I do expect uh, to see something, again, if Netanyahu moves forward. Right now, it's only talk. There's sort of an impasse, but there's still... The, the Knesset's on recess until um, end of October, uh, things are going to start first with other laws. So we don't expect anything to move before December. However, that gets to the point of my article. We are, December is, you know, sort of uh, a few months ahead of the primaries season. And that's where the political question comes in. Does Biden need, want, or can afford a fight with Israel. Yeah, so like like uh, Laura said, 70%, I think, of American Jews voted for Biden in 2020. And most American Jews have generally been repulsed by is- the Israeli government's plan to skew the balance of power toward the right wing. Toward, towards the right wing. So why hasn't, you know, you wrote in your article, Biden has been uh, passive aggressive. Why hasn't he taken a more aggressive approach? One, it's, sort of uh, strategic, obviously, um, though, as you said, 70% support him. And uh, recent polls showed that it's not on the top of minds of Jewish voters who vote Democratic. It's probably the num- issue number 10. P- 
people still care about this one the well-being security of israel but also are emotionally attached to the situation those who are unhappy with how biden how, how biden is being passive on israel they will vote for any democrat over donald trump or for that matter any republican nominee those however who fear an aggressive approach from president biden those can be persuaded those are independents or soft-leaning republicans who can be persuaded either not to come out or not to vote for biden because they see they see him as being a little too tough on israel and for that it matters so let me do the flip side of that question which is during especially the beginning of the trump administration he was wildly popular in israel is trump after the latest round of everything that's been happening here domestically and given what's transpired in israel recently is trump still seen as a good person for israel to most israelis and and how are israelis viewing biden's passivity given how many israelis are regularly out in the streets i'm speaking to people within israel and you see even the way uh, Netanyahu hasn't even responded to attacks by by Trump. He hasn't had nice words to say about the Israeli leader in recent years. And despite that, he's been very quiet and reluctant to criticize him for that very reason. Donald Trump is still very popular in Israel. And you cannot find any Israeli who would suggest that he's not a friend of Israel. Now, they obviously don't vote in u.s elections and for them the democracy here in the u.s uh may matter a bit but they have obviously their own uh um, dealings and so they don't care so much about whether trump is indicted or not whether trump is emboldening anti-semites or not for them they see the relocation of the u.s embassy to jerusalem they see the u.s recognition of the golan heights of israeli control of the golan heights they see the Abraham Accords, which is a key component uh, and a legacy of the first um, uh, Trump administration. And for them, it's sort of Donald Trump was good to us. Speaking of the Abraham Accords, you had an interesting point in your article. You talked about there's been rumors recently that there may be a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, kind of normalizing relations, and that the U.S. would be a broker in that, and that it would be uh, the next step in the Abraham Accords. If that were to happen, you know, that would be great for Netanyahu and it would be great for Biden. It would be great for both of their uh, legacies. Do you think that if Biden did that, if Biden was able to accomplish that and, you know, uh, take that next step in the Abraham Accords that Trump started, do you think that would broaden his support across the aisle? You know, would would Republicans look at Biden, would Israelis look at Biden as more on their side if that were to happen i mean it definitely couldn't could help like it definitely uh couldn't make things worse right for those supporting the president this would be great right because they would say he topped donald trump donald trump brought the abraham accords but here's the big deal here's the big prize which is saudi arabia uh, on the other side um, a u.s um settlement with saudi arabia won't be very popular among the progressive left and there could be right. a lot of Democrats who'd be critical of it. <laughs> so you have to sort of say, oh, Israel is getting some normalization. Fine, that's good. 
but then they'll question, uh, should we give Netanyahu such a prize and actually cement his legacy uh -huh. while he's acting uh, so unfriendly to us? So it, again, it won't damage his prospects because these people will still vote for Biden over Trump or any other Republican nominee. But definitely mm -hmm. could take away that weapon, that uh, sort of target from the Republican. The RJC is definitely going to use the Trump Abraham Accords as something that, oh, he might be crazy, he might be under indictment, but oh, he brought this great peace to the region. Well, guess what? Biden actually. So, you know, you have sort of that counter argument where Biden topped uh, Trump on the Abraham Accords. But again, like the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden, bringing a, 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 a such a deal that actually uh, serves U.S. Uh, interests uh, both in the region and domestically, of course, it would be a big deal for Biden. Right. Jacob, this has been such an illuminating conversation. I'm wondering what big questions you are thinking about as you're covering the region and, and what specifically you're watching closely right now? The big questions is obviously, I mean, right now we also have this crisis in Israel where it's not only, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israelis coming out uh, in mass protests, street protests every week, which is sort of a political situation which could be resolved in an election. If elections were held now, you know, you could potentially see uh, another government um, elected, but it also has to do one security wise, you know, how this impacts Israel's security long term in dealing with its enemies and dealing with Iran. Uh, secondly, uh, you also have this uh, uh, situation where we don't know what will transpire in the in the year to come. We don't know whether Netanyahu will moderate, whether Netanyahu will go all out in order to get a get out of jail a card. And therefore, the unpredictability, had, you know, uh, reflects both on diplomatic relations with even those countries that Israel signed normalization deals with. You already see the UAE saying, we have a great relationship, economic relationship with Israel. We love Israeli tourists and Israeli investments in Dubai. But we don't necessarily want to invite the the guy who actually initiated uh, and signed this deal because it's toxic. You have potentially, again, there might be a, a deal with Saudi Arabia. Uh, MBS necessar uh, doesn't necessarily care about Israel being uh, democratic uh, or about Israeli human rights values, but he definitely looks at it as, you know, will... Uh, normalization deal with Israel get me a free pass or open door in Washington. If Netanyahu is so toxic that Washington doesn't even want to invite him over for a simple meeting within, or he's a persona non grata, why does MBS need Netanyahu? He can wait till somebody else, a more moderate Israeli leader, who can bring the center and right together in a unity government to uh, cement this deal. Uh, he has a time for himself. And you also obviously have the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which will loom over a potential deal with Saudi Arabia because of the situation on ground. Jacob, uh, I know you're writing three more articles today, which I have to edit, so I'll let you get back to, uh, <laughs> to reporting. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jacob. All right, take care. So interesting. I think ultimately Netanyahu is going to do what Netanyahu needs to do to save his skin. And uh, we will see what that entails in the coming weeks. But wrapping up as we always do with our recommendations of the week. Binyamin, why don't you go first this time? Oh, wow. I bet your suggestion is more erudite than mine. (laughs) Um, I binged uh, over the weekend a new Netflix series called Painkiller which is about the opioid crisis and specifically about the Sackler family, this, this uh, family mm. of Jewish, very wealthy Jewish billionaires, uh, philanthropists who have given to a lot of Jewish causes. As and opposed it, to the poor Jewish billionaires. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. So it's about the Sackler family and how they launched the opioid crisis. There's been a lot of books, a lot of documentaries. I've read a lot of these books. And- yeah. How does it compare to something like Dope Sick? So I don't know if it's as good. It was, I don't know if it's as good, but like when I was watching it, I was, you know, enthralled and I wanted to keep, you know, Netflix likes to Mm -hmm. leave you on a cliffhanger and you want to always watch the next episode. And it's only six episodes. Um, It wasn't great, but it stuck with me. I found myself days Mm -hmm. later thinking uh, about some of the uh, characters and, you know, the travails that they went through. So for that reason, I would recommend Painkiller on Netflix. Sounds very interesting. My recommendation is also on Netflix. Um, It's a comedy special, though, by a comedian, Jared Freed, who is a Jewish New Yorker who, as the title explains, is 37 and single. And it's a very funny stand-up routine about being 37 and single. And he has a great line about being in what to him was the middle of nowhere, which happens to be my hometown of Springfield, Missouri and making a joke about Boca Raton and no one in the audience getting it. So I, I thought that in particular was great. Jared, if you're listening for some reason, I loved that line. But it's called Jared Freed, colon, 37 and single, and it's out on Netflix as of yesterday. We should get Netflix as a sponsor of our podcast. We should. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. All right, Laura, it's been great catching up with you. Uh, we'll, we'll see everybody next week. Yes, thank you, Binyamin. Talk soon. Take care. That Jewish News Show is hosted and produced by me, Laura E. Adkins, and Binyamin Cohen. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review That Jewish News Show wherever you're listening. We'd also be ever so grateful if you'd share today's episode with a friend or two. You can reach me and Binyamin at thatjewishnewsshow at forward.com or by calling or texting 201-228-0412. That Jewish News Show is a production of The Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rudoran and our CEO is Rachel fishman Pedersen. Our theme music is by The Fly Guy 5. The Forward Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and The Forward was founded in 1897.